Last week, Sue and I went to Arlene Tully's installation as our brand new district superintendent. And she shared, Arlene, shared a sermon with us that referenced Phyllis Tickle. Has anyone heard of Phyllis Tickle? No? That's because I'm a theology geek. <laughs> she is a respected, or was, a res may she rest in peace, a respected um, church historian and theologian. And Arlene referenced um, Tickle's teaching that the church is going through a major revolution, that it does so about every 500 years. And the book that she referenced is about 20 years old at this point. I think 10 or 20 years old, some, something like that. And so Tickle says, we're, we're here, we're due for another one. And so I thought I'd give us a very quick history lesson, not in a whole book, although I will let you know, I started out with a five page sermon, which is about 45 minutes. And I did pare it down because I love you. <laughs> and I realized not everyone is a history geek like I am. But if you go back in history, the Christian church actually started as a reformation of the Jewish faith and tradition, a movement that began as a resistance against the Roman Empire and was gaining momentum just as Jesus came of age. So you hear that, right? Jesus entered the world as the Jewish church was really um, entering its own kind of place of reformation. God has wonderful timing. <laughs> a mere 500 years after Jesus's birth, Christianity was widely embraced as a formal religion from the westernmost points of Europe to India in the east and Ethiopia in the southern hemisphere. But 500 years after that, 1054, the great schism divided the church. Now, do you know what, what, what the great, or who the great schism involved? Ooh, going back now. You can say it out loud. Go ahead, Lloyd. Well, that was one of the things in argument, but it was basically the schism divided those who followed the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church and those who held what are now called Orthodox beliefs and traditions. The Orthodox Church accused the Roman Catholic Church of being too rational. <laughs> Can you believe it? But too legalistic. The Roman Catholic Church had elevated reason as the criterion for determining truth, while orthodoxy maintained that reason is but a tool in our toolbox, and it is not required for salvation. Now, they wouldn't have used these words, but I'm going to translate it in today's um, much more sensitive language. Basically, they argued the Orthodox Church, that intellectual divergence, that's what we call it now, right, does not add to nor remove one's ability to know and experience God. It doesn't matter how smart you are on anybody's standards. Anybody can come to know and experience God. And the church split. 
500 years later, on October 31st, 1517, a monk, a scholar, a professor of Bible and theology at Wittenberg, Wittenberg University named Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church and sparked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So called because the theses were a list of protests against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if we boiled his 95 theses down to two major arguments, see how I'm cutting out a whole lot? <laughs> the first one was that the Bible, Scripture, is the central authority, central religious authority, not the Pope. That's a lot for a monk to come out and say that, right? So that's the first one. And two, salvation is only available by faith. It's not about what you do. You can't earn God's love by doing good works, nor by paying for it. One of the big traditions they had at the time were called indulgences, where you could pay the church, pay the priest, to buy your way out of purgatory, or Uncle Bob, or anybody else for that matter. And the church split again. And so here we are, 500 years later, on this, 505 to be precise, on this Reformation Sunday, considering what our faith means to us. Truth be told, most people are not able to put into words what they believe about God, the Holy Spirit, creator, the heavenly or supernatural. And I'll be honest that this sermon was, the beginnings of it were stoked by um, something that Gloria gave me that Lincoln had written about what he believed. And I thought, wow, how many people have actually sat down and written about what you believe. Many of us cannot answer Jesus's question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? You can tell me what everybody else says, but who do you say that I am? Some of us get stuck on the historical rabbi. Some get tripped up by Jesus's miracles and his resurrection. Is he human or divine or both? And what does any of that mean in my life? <laughs> Some have not spent time thinking about what they believe, perhaps with a mindset that they're living life in the moment and they're too busy to worry about things that don't seem to apply to their experience. Some have been deeply wounded by other people, by the church, by life in general. And so they've come to the conclusion that if such a being called God exists, they are too cruel to allow all this pain and suffering to happen on earth. And I don't really want to have anything to do with that. Many folks are confused by theological terms and ideas that have not been well explained or offered in a relevant context. 
and others simply don't know where to start. They're content with the idea of a benevolent creator, but unwilling to commit to anything more than that because there are so many beliefs and religions out there. Who's right and who is wrong? And what if I choose the wrong one? Maybe it's just better not to choose at all. Christianity has been confused about faith or by faith for millennia. And maybe confused isn't the right word, even though it might have confused many of us. But Matt Rawl wrote, I've never met someone who didn't agree with his or her own position or opinion. (laughs) Maybe divided is a better word. Because all of these positions and opinions have led to countless denominations and independent faith traditions all around the globe. And if we continue along our 500-year timeline, we see that the Age of Enlightenment started right in the middle of the Reformation and moved about 100 years after the split between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And for those living in the 17th and 18th centuries, the very definition of faith changed. It wasn't about what do you believe anymore because now that word faith had a whole new meaning. Originally, faith and belief were words of the heart and the spirit. They had nothing to do with the mind. They were words that evoked a sense of trust beyond intellectual understanding. There was so much about the world that we just didn't know, that we were just figuring out that metaphors and stories were the tools we used to make sense of the world around us. We still do that to a lesser extent. Myths are not technically fiction because they all contain an element of truth. Most of them had factual origins. The God-inspired authors of the Bible had this concept of faith as they wrote our holy scripture. And so they wrote in metaphor, in dreamscapes, storytelling, and parables. You see, the kingdom of God is like. They used images and myths that were not scientifically accurate because that was not the point. The point was to illuminate an experience of God. An experience of God in relationship to humanity, to creation, to worlds beyond our imagination. And as our human curiosity expanded and our inspiration to figure things out flourished, we gained new knowledge about the world around us, about how plants reproduce, the role of bacteria in disease treatment and prevention, confirmation of what much earlier scientists and philosophers had tried to tell us about the solar system, We learned about our bodies and more about nature 
The minds of people all around the world were being challenged and awakened in new ways and at an alarming pace. And if they saw the way that knowledge moves now at this pace, that would have blown their minds. Using reason, some concluded that the stories weren't scientifically accurate in the Bible. There's no way that the world was created in six days. Humanity was exploring the theory of evolution, which required millions of years for transformations to occur. There was no way that donkeys spoke or that a virgin could give birth to a baby and on and on. And for so much of the Western world, this is what belief is when belief and faith took on an intellectual dimension and the heart got pushed out of the equation. Belief became an all or nothing deal. You were required to believe all of it or none of it. And some religious groups moved to the accept all of it as literally true. Maybe you've met some of those folks who tell us that dinosaurs never existed. Many left religion altogether because they had begun to question some of the basic tenets of their faith as being scientifically impossible and therefore they couldn't be true. In seminary, your first year, you get in and it's all like they, you enter this class called Baby Bible. <laughs> you go through the Bible in a year and, uh, and it's all pretty wonderful. And then you take your first theology class and they trash it. <laughs> they don't trash the Bible. They trash all the things you learned about in Sunday school. And they teach you about the context in which these things, these stories were written. And they tell you about all of these things that were really, are, could that be true? And it makes you start to wonder. And then you think, oh my gosh, what have I been believing all these years? And then you take another class and they build you back up. It's okay. And then they say, but there are some people who think this. And it comes all crashing down around you again until you come out with your own belief system. And you're able to say, this is what I believe. This I can't grab onto, and that's okay, because I'm still here. And we all end up in different places. You see, because there are some folks who encourage us to use our heads and our hearts. That's John Wesley. John and Charles Wesley were Church of England priests in the 18th century. They each had transforming religious experiences that led them toward a movement of reforming the nation, which was England, particularly the church, i.e. the Church of England, and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. Their experiences also led them to establish missional and philanthropic enterprises which promoted social change, like free access for all to public education and health care, prison reform, the abolition of slavery, 
and reform of political processes filled with corruption. Hmm. I think we could use some more of that. <laughs> Jesus' words about feeding and clothing the hungry and the naked were not lost on the Wesley brothers who believed that faith without works was dead, which comes right to us from the epistle of James. They were practical theologians formed in their faith by scripture and reason and the traditions of the church and their experiences of God. And one night, at a place in London called Aldersgate, while listening to someone read Martin Luther's introduction to the epistle to the Romans, remember, Professor Luther, right, taught. John Wesley recorded in his journals that his heart was strangely warmed. Professor Luther illuminated Paul's writing to the Romans saying that when God is at work in you, you can't help yourself but do good works. He wrote, it's as impossible to separate works from faith as it is burning and shining from fire. However, he also warned us, as Doug read for us today from Paul, that we can't think too highly of ourselves, as though we can make judgments about someone else's faith based on their good works or lack thereof. Only God can do that, because it is the intention behind the good works that matters, and only God knows the contents of our hearts. Luther concluded from Paul's letter that faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. I wonder if John Wesley found this comforting, the idea that it's not our job to end sin and injustice. That's too big for us. Rather, it's our task to honor God with all that we have and all that we are by serving others. God's grace makes it possible for the gifts of the Spirit to work within us and for us to live virtuous lives with eagerness and love. Romans chapter 12 is a guide to living as a minister of the gospel. Remember, Luther was also the one who taught from scripture that we belong, all of us, to the priesthood of all believers. We are a living sacrifice, giving all that we have and all that we are out of gratitude for the grace and love God offers us without are earning it. We did nothing to deserve it except to be created as a beloved child of God. We were created by God in order that we might be loved by God and in response, love God and one another. We all have different gifts to offer so that we can help each other along this road of faith and life. 
Luther explains that Paul's letter tells how Christians teach, preach, rule, serve, give, suffer, love, live, and act toward friend, foe, and everyone. He says these are the works that a Christian does, for faith is not idle. 500 years since the Reformation, nearly 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter, and the advice is the same. Do not conform to this age, whatever age you find yourself in. Look forward. Imagine something new. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God. God is always doing something new. In order to help us move forward towards something resembling God's vision of justice. And so how is God encouraging the church with a capital C to transform now? The church has gone through revolutions and reformations, schisms and splits all throughout history. The calendar tells us we're due for another. The United Methodist Church is in the midst of it. But let's have hope in God's providence. The church with a capital C never collapsed or died, even though many of their buildings might have closed their doors. God remained steadfast. So will we trust a new vision of church that continues to meet the needs of our neighbors, like our vision that we've grabbed onto here, building bridges of healing and hope? Will we use our heads and our hearts? Will we balance reason and tradition with our foundation of scripture and our personal and communal experiences of God? Can you answer, who is God to you? And if we don't know the answer to that question, then how will we be able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect? Will we hear God's call? Will we recognize Jesus' voice and open the gates for all to enter in? What will the next 500 years bring? We were born for just such a time as this. Thanks be to God. Amen.